This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. There are over 4,000 foster children living in Connecticut. May is foster care month, and so we're talking about this complex system involving caretakers, lawmakers, and of course, the children placed in the state's care. From what we see on TV and the media, foster care looks like a selfless, philanthropic act, willing foster parents to open up their homes to children in need. But being a foster parent is a complicated job that requires many layers of kindness and sensitivity. Laura is a foster parent based out of California. She received a lot of attention sharing a video on TikTok about her experience as a foster mom and continues to share that experience and advice on social media. The topics range from navigating relationships between foster parents and biological parents to preparing your home before you become a foster parent. As Laura describes, people have a lot of questions on what life is like as a foster parent. Joining us now is Laura, who's a foster parent in California. She runs Laura Foster Parent Partner, protect the privacy of the children in her care. We are only sharing her first name. Laura helps new foster parents get started and navigate services. She has nearly 200,000 followers on Instagram, where she shares her tips on being a foster parent. Laura, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me. So I actually started my career covering a lot of stories related to foster care and foster parents and foster children. And what I really love about those stories is hearing how parents get inspired or how they wanted to get involved. So I would love for you to share, you know, how did you get started as a foster parent? Yeah, maybe in an odd way. But when I was a teenager, I actually saw a TV special called A Home for the Holidays uh, that's put on by the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And really, it's focused on foster youth and older kids in the system. And it stuck with me. I was a teenager. I was seeing teenagers on the screen. I asked my dad, who I was watching with a lot of questions, and um, it, it was my introduction to foster care. And it was something that kind of held on to it, planted a seed for me. And I, you know, continued my life. I went to school and moved out to California. And I was always thinking about that. It was always just sort of on my mind, like, how can I support that community? Where do I fit into that? And I was married and something, you know, I brought it up with my husband and we're like, you know what, let's just learn more. Let's start there and see if it makes sense for us. We ended up attending an introductory session, and as as soon as you 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 learn about it, I don't know how you can walk away from it in some way. And so it was sort of an immediate like, okay, we have to help. We have space in our home. We don't have biological children, so we you know we have the time, capacity, resources. We should we should do this and let's just, let's see what that life is like. And, you know, we, we dove in, took a leap of faith and, and started and haven't really looked back since. So I think, I think seeing foster care in, in stories and in media, like you just mentioned it, it does plant something in people's minds. You know, are people naturally curious about your work and what the work of a foster care parent, what does it look like? Yeah, absolutely. People, a lot of my followers, are curious people, or maybe they knew someone who knew someone or were somehow briefly touched by child welfare. And it is, it is not talked about a lot. You know, 
we see stories here and there. Oftentimes they are very shocking or really horrific stories. And I think that um, that scares a lot of people. And then it also leads to a lot of questions. And so there is a lot of curiosity. People come to the page and ask a lot of hypothetical questions or just kind of understanding where could I fit in or what could I do? And and I love starting the conversation there because there is so much that anyone could do. We can all help and insert ourselves in some way to help families and kids. And because you've spoken with so many people about this and including your partner, your husband, you know, what did the conversation look like between you and your husband? And, and during those conversations, both with him and with other people, were there some common misconceptions or misunderstanding on foster care that you were kind of able to help them understand better? You know, what was that like? Yeah. So with Chris, my husband, you know, he, he has always, you know, had a philanthropic side and um, this was a topic he didn't know a lot about. So we did start to engage with media. We watched documentaries, we watched TV shows, movies, and that's how we had our own internal conversations and started to discover more about child welfare. And, um, you know, when you start to kind of get tuned in, you start to meet people. It starts to come up in conversation. And we were meeting people who um, were, you know, involved in some way or another. And yes, as we start to explain to our families what we were planning to do and our friends, there was hesitation. There was also support, but there was, you know, some fear and worry, concern, like, oh, that's going to be very hard. Are you sure you want to do that? Are you worried about your safety? And I think that is um, the first reaction. I think a lot of people have fear when they're actually starting to consider their life to be a foster parent. Um, and so, you know, as over time, we we break that down with our family, as we learned as well. We tried to pass along when we went through our training, we tried to share those out with our friends and family that were going to be supportive of our foster care journey. And we will get on, get to uh, details about this in a little bit, but I do want to talk about the fact that you do talk about uh, reunification on your page. So can you sort of explain to our listeners what that is? Because I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know if this is necessarily a misconception, but there's this idea that you could adopt after you foster a child, right? But it's also an important aspect of it is the reunification portion of it. So can you kind of talk about that a bit and explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah. The goal of foster care is reunification, which is when a child returns home to either both their parents or their just one parent. That is reunification of the family, bringing them back together. And that is the goal. That is the plan. That is the path. Now, things happen along the way, of course. Every situation is different and some are more extreme than others. And so, Yes, we do often find ourselves with children that cannot return home. And then from there, we, you know, the system typically tries to find what they call kinship or fictive kin, which is relatives, extended family members, or people within the family friends circle, um, someone that knows the child who can provide permanency for them. And then, of course, if that layer does not um, work out, 
then yes, foster care providers are asked if they'll provide permanency, and it's usually in the form of adoption. And I know you also emphasizing, or you also emphasize to not disparage the biological parents in these scenarios, and also celebrate a termination of parental rights, which is kind of a a funny way to go about this, but it is a celebration for many of these relationships. You know, how do you how do you support relationships with their biological parents if that's possible, and how do you help navigate your relationship with biological parents or relatives, grandparents, like you were mentioning earlier? So I always try to enter into this relationship with a clean slate. I try to take everything that is passed along to me with a grain of salt. And I try to have the mindset that I don't know everything. I will never know everything. And I must believe as a foster parent that circumstances can change. And that thinking kind of allows for a relationship to begin. So you get to know families. And I find that when you do extend communication, whether that's written or in person or over the phone, you know, a lot of positive things can happen. And it's not just your relationship and you supporting reunification and helping the family achieve that. You know, the kids are watching too. They will likely feel more at ease when they see you, the stranger, the foster parent, interacting professionally or positively with their parent. It can help them feel more at ease in your home. They may trust you more if they see your parent is trusting you. And so, you know, there's a whole slew of reasons why this relationship is important. Um, But I try to always, you know, have my own trauma-informed lens and thinking as I interact with parents as well, because they're in crisis too, not the child is, and so is the parent. Well, and I'm I'm glad that you meant. Well, I'm not glad that you mentioned trauma, but trauma is such a huge um, element to this. I mean, there's a reason why foster care exists. I think to a certain extent, and as you've mentioned, a lot of the children that come into your care have survived trauma and abuse. So, so we'll kind of break this down in a couple different ways. But so, when you're housing a child that has survived, you know, sexual or physical abuse. What are the things that you can help make them feel comfortable in your new environment, especially since you just talked about you're a stranger, uh, you're coming with these lenses, and you're also preparing yourself to be mentally prepared for this. Um, So how do you go about doing that? Yeah, so often we don't have a lot of information on what's happened. We may have like a very high level, this is sort of the reason they were removed And, you know, when a child comes in, we meet them where they're at, which is like a very big idea. And I do try to break that down in a lot of the work that I do. And that's, you know, matching their tone and giving them choice and options. And I try to put myself in their shoes or try to connect. Like if I was walking into a totally strange environment and I was having the worst day of my life, what would I need? You would probably need food that makes you feel good, that's comforting, that's easy, that you recognize. You probably would need soft lighting or options for lighting, space and time, a comforting, soft bedroom, um, people in the home to speak with you in a way that is light and open, 
and not forceful or interrogating. As those hours and days unfold, you can start to learn about their needs or what is triggering them. Um, and, you know, as we enter into all of these different situations, you know, when we can be accommodating and nurturing, that sets up for a a good, a, at least a trustful or respectful relationship. It's a starting point. You might not always get it right, but now you've learned something. And I think that's key is being open to learning. And the kids are going to change too, by the way. Something they wanted on day one is going to be different on, you know, a couple weeks in. And so just kind of walking slowly, making time for rest, keeping a schedule that's predictable and something you can rely on can be incredibly helpful. Well, among many other things, I was still, there's there's some to get you started. <laughs> I was just gonna say, I mean, that is even helpful for me sitting here in the studio. Like what you, what the picture you just painted, I'm already like, this is so calming. Mm-hmm. Um, so what a great starting point for anyone, really. So let alone a, a child who is experiencing something so traumatic and so different. Mm-hmm. And because this is such a complicated area, when you do have children coming from from different ages, especially young children versus teenagers, which I think also plays into the misconception perception question. Um, How do you or how can people prepare for those very different levels of trauma? Well, I think being properly trained, it's really on caregivers to extend out and further their training. And to um, so that can be at a local community college, there's so much online that they can find. And so that can help you kind of adjust. And also talking to other foster parents, join in the support group, that is so critical. I pick up so many of these nuanced tips by talking with other foster parents. You know, I'm in my own support group. I meet monthly. I also talk to my own type of mentor twice a month. Um, and so really just kind of cluing in. I also lean heavily on therapists. I ask for parent coaching sessions. In addition, you know, the child will have their own therapy, but oftentimes you can ask for additional coaching sessions. That's a great place to get nuanced information. And then I'll also, you know, turn to former foster youth. They, their lived experience can be so helpful for foster parents to better their care for kids. And that's all ages. You know, former foster youth can tell stories and recall times when they were just small children. And, um, by listening to former foster youth, we can really enrich the care we're providing. And I think this builds on what we've been talking about and another area that I think we can do a whole show on. And I feel like maybe this is a similar sort of uh, behind the scenes work for the foster parent, but how do you go about it when there are significant cultural differences, you know, when the child is from a very different cultural background compared to the foster parents? What do you do to help navigate through that? Mm -hmm. It starts before you say yes, in my opinion. Um, I think it's really important that you reflect on your own knowledge and experiences and then look out at your community that you have before you say yes. Who is there that can help educate you, support you, and support and be a cultural mirror for the child? If that does not exist for specific religions or cultures or traditions, then I think there's work to do before you say yes. Now, 
I, I might get a little pushback on that because there is, there's a lot of kids waiting for homes. And so it's nuanced, right? As with everything. So we don't want kids to spend the night in a conference room or at a hotel. That's not okay either. And and here is where I welcome you into all of those murky areas of child welfare. So if you say yes to a child who has a different culture than you, then there's a lot of work to do to seek out that support with your community, to seek out additional training and to foster a relationship with the biological family. You know, if the parents are not um, engaged at that point, then what about relatives, siblings, cousins, family, friends? How can you ask for visits with them? How can you ensure they're, they're in, um, you know, your, your foster child's life while they're in your care and um, advocating for translation services. I mean, there's lots of places along the way that foster parents can advocate to ensure that, that the cultural needs are met of that child. Well, I think I, I will never forget one of my friends who did uh, foster a child and eventually adopted him and has a relationship with the biological mother that she always wanted to foster or adopt a child that looks like, who looks like she could have had the child. Mm -hmm. And that always stuck with me because there is a cultural difference that a lot of children, adoptees as well, that they struggle going into their adulthood. And so I think following along those lines too, you know, how do you introduce a child in foster care to your family and friends? Sounds like something that you should do prior to saying yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time kind of preparing my friends and family that would be engaging with kids in my care about what boundaries are, what questions are appropriate, what's not appropriate. And I will correct them along the way as well, not in front of the child and unless it's necessary. I do try to um, make sure that I'm creating safe spaces for the kids. And so, yes, before you are welcoming kids, you have to take that, that look at your family and friends. You need to have those conversations. You know, we had a... Um, you know, people have like baby showers. We had a foster shower, which we took as a moment to collect our our community and kind of understand who was going to be there to support us. And we we took it as a time to answer questions. One of, you know, normally at shower games, you're playing like a, a diaper game. And for us, we had a, a question bowl, an anonymous question bowl where people asked questions that maybe they were uncomfortable to say out loud or ask directly. And we sat around in a circle. I have, you know, I have the picture in my head. I can remember it and answered these questions and kind of talked about any elephants in the room. And also we're pretty clear in what our expectations were if people were going to be involved with us. And we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I do want to ask too, you know, we've we've mentioned how this is such an emotional, emotionally heavy and physically heavy sort of process for good and the bad. So when children leave your care, you know, what were those experiences like for you? And and is this personal? Like, do you feel it personally? Mm -hmm. I think you absolutely do. Um, it is an experience unlike anything else. And so I think that does bring a lot of fear. You know, I always go back to that fear. Um, and, and, you know, as you approach it, there's a lot of fear. But the reality is, is 
if you are talking to the advocates, attending court hearings, if you're engaged in the case, you will have somewhat of a sense as to what is coming. And a true reunification back to parents comes with usually visitation that's unsupervised, overnight visits, weekend visits. So during those that transition time, you do have the opportunity to prepare your heart. And that's an important piece because that is very personal and everyone will need something different. You can avoid the trauma of it all if you are supported. And that's, I think, the the thought through all of this is if you have soft landings, you can get through things. Now, some people, it is too hard and they decide not to foster anymore. And that's okay, too. Um, but with support, I think you can you can get through it. I, I know you're talking about these experiences and 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 um, and how how good it could be, you know, for both the families and the child. What do you want people to know about becoming a foster care parent? You know, if they're deciding whether or not it's a good fit for them, what would you say to them? I would say that it, you know, take it seriously. It's it's good that you're listening today and you're engaging and you're tuning in. Um, I would say that it is it is possible to help and there's different ways to help. So it's really good to do some self-reflection on your family and talk to everyone in the family and, and kind of decide what, what path works for you. But, you know, there's so many ways to engage and to support families that everyone can do something, whether it's just providing support services for other foster families or, you know, kinship families or fostering yourself. You know, if you're not ready to take a full commitment um, and see a case from start to finish, you can provide respite care, which is essentially overnight care, you know, for other foster families who maybe need to travel or something's come up, they have to go to a funeral. Typically, foster children will go to a respite provider in those times. You can start a little bit slower. You can get licensed and just do respite care or babysitting or help out at events or provide support for other foster families. You know, definitely take that decision seriously, but know that there are a lot of paths forward to support the community. And we have a limited amount of time left, but I do want to ask, you know, somewhere during your own foster parent journey, you've decided to share a video on social media. Can you talk about that video and what made you want to share it? Sure. So after COVID times, like the big, you know, lockdown time, I felt myself that I needed support and, you know, was looking for it online, as many people do, just to find someone who could share in some of my experiences. When I went online, I didn't find a lot of educational content. And so I was like, hmm, I, I wonder why. And, you know, I started to look through, I talked to a friend who also created educational videos and she really encouraged me to just make one and just see what happens just to try it. And so I did make one video that was saying hello to a new child. And that was, that was the premise of the video it was just saying hi. And I, you know, put it up on TikTok, thinking I would see it and I'd send it to my friend. And, you know, then I kept starting getting views. And I'd never been on TikTok before. I was like, what's happening? And then I woke up the next morning and it had a million views. And I was like, wow, <laughs> I had no, wow. I, you know, I just was like, there's something to this. I think I'm not the only one that wants to learn and engage in this topic. 
And so from there, I created more. And so especially in a lot of my viral videos, if you go through the comments, you see caseworkers, former foster youth, current foster youth, attorneys, politicians, you know, it's sort of become this big conversation piece. And I think that's great because we need to be talking about it and broadening our views and extending our thinking. Well, I want to thank Laura. You've been listening to Laura, who is a foster parent in California, and she's been helping us better understand how that whole process works. Thank you so much for your time today, Laura. It was amazing. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And that was Laura, who is a foster parent in California. She runs Laura Foster Parent Partner. And coming up next, we'll hear from the Department of Children and Families, Commissioner Vanessa Dorantes. And if you have experience with foster care, we want to hear from you. Give us a call, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Hartford HealthCare recently celebrated the opening of the Ridge Recovery Center in Wyndham. Christy Scott, Vice President of Clinical Operations, describes this new state-of-the-art destination for healing. Individuals will come if they're suffering from substance use disorder and get individualized treatment. They can stay up to three to four weeks and receive family therapy, individual therapy, group therapy, and lots of other holistic care like yoga, trail walking, acupuncture. So it's going to be a great place for people to come and heal. For those seeking recovery, finding it close to home can sometimes be challenging. Many individuals travel to Florida and other states that have more treatment centers. So we're hoping by doubling our capacity at Hartford HealthCare, the individuals can stay in their home state with their family and support systems close by. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. The foster care population in Connecticut is dropping, and the state emphasizes reunification wherever possible. There are approximately 3,000 foster children living in Connecticut right now. And we just heard from a foster care parent from California who shared her own experiences. And joining us now is Vanessa Dorantes. She's the commissioner of the Connecticut Department of Children and Families. Thank you so much, Commissioner, for joining us this morning. Well, hello, Catherine. Thanks for having me. That was an amazing, amazing summary of from the foster parents' perspective. Laura was spot on on everything that she she outlined. Well, we are just in awe still with Laura. And like I mentioned in that interview that I started my career for some reason, um, covering a lot of foster care stories. So this always has a special place in my heart. And and I think you took a peek in our script somehow, because that's really my first question for you, as <laughs> I wanted you to respond to what we've heard from Laura about her own experiences. And, and, you know, what was going through your mind when you were hearing her story? 
I was yelling at the screen. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Everything that she said was um, truly spot on. You know, the Children's Bureau national theme this year for um, May happens to be Foster Care Awareness Month. So we really appreciate you raising awareness in this way with these, this segment. Um, but their theme is strengthening minds and uplifting families, which um, kind of highlights the holistic approach to recognizing the mental health needs of kids and their families who may become involved with the child welfare system. And everything Laura talked about um, truly was about embracing this uplifting of families, whether it's the foster family themselves and the preparation she talked about with her extended family and community, or uplifting the biological family that that child is um, forever tethered to. So, you know, I, I think really recognizing the support and strength of the community that wraps around kids was the, the theme that I heard throughout her piece. And, you know, she we had a lot of focus with her experiences being a foster parent and sort of educating people who want to become a foster parent um, and sort of navigating through the system. So from where you're standing, Commissioner, what do you see as some of the major issues with the foster care system in our state? Mm -hmm. So um, we have a, a tremendously um, strong foster care advocacy um, community. Um, you know, there are support groups. There are groups that are part of a, a contract that we have with the Connecticut Association of Foster and Adoptive Families. And I think, you know, where I see the evolution of foster care in our state, it's recognizing the characteristics of children who we have in care. So as you've um uh, probably, I think you you mentioned that 50% uh, of the children that we have in care under the age of 18 are with relatives or someone that they know. The rest are in core or traditional foster homes. And in Connecticut, um, we license relatives and kin, just like we would a traditional foster parent. So when I think about the children who are in care, many times we were not able to um, immediately secure a relative. So there may be some complex mental health needs of that child. You know, we have sibling groups that may need placements. We have children who have medical complexities. So people who have, you know, a particular specialty in an area that would want child-specific training. We have, you know, children that are that identify as LGBTQIA+, um, who need affirming placements. And, you know, we, are, we also have teens. We have about 260-some teens who um, could use a, a, a stable family um, at this time. So when I think about the needs of foster care in Connecticut, it's the evolution to really being, you know, you want to have more homes than you have kids for, so you can make those matches that Laura was talking about. And on that note, too, uh, continuing the topic on re reunification, we know that it is the end goal. So how do you train foster parents to build a relationship with biological parents? And have you experienced pushback on that? Yeah, you know, we are a, uh, a state that, um, subscribes to the QPI model or quality parenting initiative. It's a model that involves um, several jurisdictions across the country who recognize this need for that triad, the department, the biological family, and the foster family to be working in concert with each other right from the beginning when it's safely possible to do so. And so reunification starts with the identification of the home and at placement. Because as Laura indicated, you're always working towards stabilizing that child situation so their parent and the department and all of the other stakeholders that are involved can work towards 
uh, reunification. So that's not something that happens at the end. It happens all the way throughout the life of the of the situation. Now, you know, the pushback that you talked about is sometimes when the plan for the child, if there's some disagreement. And what you'll hear a little bit later from our advocates is really trying to get to the best needs for the child and getting to the resolution that best suits that particular child. And we've also heard from the Office of the Child Advocate who said foster parents and children, as well as children's families of origin, need every support we can give them to help facilitate permanency, including reunification of children with their parents. Love is essential, but love alone is not enough. Foster parents are impacted by the same constraints in the children's mental health system that face all families. As a society, we still have more work to do to make sure that every child and every caregiver has the tools they need to help children grow up safe, healthy, and supported. And so building on that statement from um, the Office of the Child Advocate, I want to ask you, Commissioner, you know, what type of emotional and mental support is given to foster parents, uh, mm-hmm. children, and biological parents during that reunification process? Yeah, you know, I, I agree with that statement too, 100%, because the process involves, you know, recognizing that everyone's life is changed when the dynamic of foster care is introduced. So recognizing that we have formal supports woven into our foster care system here in Connecticut. So I have dedicated social workers who their job title is foster care support worker, and they support the foster parents that are um, in there you know, in their in their in their area. We also have um, peer foster parents who, you know, just create this network of support for each other. We recognize that if a child is in any type of therapeutic intervention, you know, we also have a category of foster care in Connecticut called functional family therapy. Um, that is a model of foster care that allows for um, a, 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 the clinical needs of children to be met. So that involves, you know, how you prepare a parent for the child's specialized needs and that relationship brokering with the biological family. You know, it, I talked about the QPI model. It's not for the foster parent to have to try to navigate that on their own. The department and our supportive agencies that work with us help that relationship. Um, And so, you know, there's lots of ways to support the therapeutic needs um, when a family is in crisis and, you know, not just recognizing that it's, you know, you're just like, as that quote indicated, love is great, but it's not enough. You know, it's not everything. It's the complex needs of kids, families, and all the, you know, adults around a child when their, their family is going through crisis. I'm going to touch on a question that Sid on Facebook has on the exact conversation we're having right now. Uh, He has two questions. He says, Native American activists in the Midwest have highlighted the potential harm to Indian children in the foster care and adoption system systems if the U.S. Supreme Court negates parts of the National Indian Child Welfare Act. How does Connecticut support foster care and adoptions of Indian children within the Native American community rather than removing them from their culture? And is there a state law as a backstop in case the national law is weakened? Can you respond to that? It's an excellent question, Sid. Thank you for raising that. And it speaks to the issue that Laura was talking about, preserving the cultural identity of children. Um, Connecticut, of course, is a jurisdiction that ascribes to the Indian Child Welfare Act parameters. And what Sid is referencing is that there is 
um, a challenge to that right now um, circulating through uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, in Connecticut, we have two federally recognized tribes and five um, Native American tribes, and we have been working very closely with legislative advocates to ensure that there is a state backstop if that were to occur. And so throughout this particular legislative session that we're in right now, department um, specialists as well as members of the Connecticut tribes and our legislative partners have been working feverishly to ensure that um, here in Connecticut, we protect the sovereignty of Native American children to um, continue the protections that the structures of the Native American tribes have put in place for that very reason. So I, I really appreciate that question. Thank you so much for that comment, Sid. And if you have experience with foster care, we would love to hear from you. Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, Commissioner, although you know we've talked about uh, earlier that the foster care population is dropping, so is there still a need for more foster parents? You know, what do you want others to know about becoming a foster parent? So we have um, reunified just about just over 2,500 children since I've been in this seat, and our foster care population has dropped by about 30 percent. The thing to know about that particular statistic is that, you know, we certainly don't want a revolving door of children being reunified for reunification's sake. So we've watched the trends of repeat maltreatment or children that have a substantiation of abuse or neglect within six months or re-entries into foster care once they've been reunified. And I'm proud to say that Connecticut re remains below the national average in both of those areas. So we are you know, looking to try to safely reunify and really work to build up our community supports to have children remain safely at home. Having said that, you know, you really want to make sure that while children are temporarily in care, you do the best we can collectively to stabilize their environment. So one of those examples of that is we have um, icebreakers or comfort calls. And so as Laura was talking about creating that, um, I was kind of being lulled into a calmness too as she was talking about the first night of a child being in her home. And so in Connecticut, we formalized that process where a foster parent um, can call a biological fam parent and not ask any questions about at all why this child is in care or any of that stuff that we know is, you know, angst provoking. And just talk about what's your, your child's favorite color. What type of ice cream do they like? How do they get calmed back to sleep if they have a nightmare? Those types of things that can connect the mom to mom or caregiver to caregiver um, in an effort to keep the child in the center of that relationship. And so those comfort calls or icebreakers start the relationship off in a way that is not, um, I'm not competing with you for this child's love. I'm supporting you while your family is going through this temporary crisis. And I think by setting up the relationship in that way, it starts off things in a much calmer place for a child who doesn't have to try to split loyalties and recognizes that everybody is rowing in the same direction. So this is also a conversation that's happening in the legislative level. Connecticut foster care parents are also pushing for a foster parent's bill of rights. Can you tell us about this? And do you have any updates on, on where that is going right now? Yeah, I think every stakeholder, whether it's the department, the child, biological families, or foster families have a stake in this game. And they have 
um, a voice. And in that particular bill, there is some question about, um, you know, the department's responsiveness to foster parents as we evolve and the changing needs of kids in Connecticut. And we stand open and we have met with um, several foster parent groups to hear their voices and to hear their influence over how we can continue to evolve. That's kind of where some of the QPI stuff came from, um, just suggestions from foster parents about being more involved in the decision-making um, related to kids. What you'll hear in the next segment with the advocacy group that talks about making sure the kids' voices are elevated in court, a lot of the foster parent groups also want to be able to have standing in some of the decision-making that happens in our juvenile court cases. So we stand ready to continue to have these conversations and um, work with foster parent groups, no matter who they are, to advance who we are and what the foster parent profile is here in Connecticut. And we've got about 30 seconds left, but Commissioner, where can people learn more about foster care? That's a great question. And I'm happy to say that one, 888-KID-HERO, that's 1-888-K-I-D-H-E-R-O, and to get more information, no obligation there. And of course, if there's a you know suspicion of abuse or neglect, our 24-hour care line to report suspicion of abuse or neglect is 1-800-842-2288. So two very important numbers. Thanks so much, Catherine. Absolutely. And you've been listening to Commissioner Vanessa Durantes of the Connecticut State Department or Department of Children and Families. <laughs> Thank you so very much for being on the show today. I messed it up because we're having so much fun. So <laughs> We are. We are. Thank you, Catherine. It Absolutely. Didn't, didn't mess up at all. <laughs> <laughs> and coming up next, we're going to hear from Connecticut CASA, a statewide network of volunteer court appointed special advocates. You can also give us a call 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. slavery in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. As we have learned throughout the hour, the foster care system is a multifaceted system that involves foster parents, biological parents, and a complicated court system. 
Joining us now is Connecticut CASA, which is a statewide network of volunteer court-appointed special advocates. And with me now is Josiah Brown, who is the executive director of CASA, and Trisha Goburn, who is a CASA advocate. Thank you both so much for joining us this morning. Thank Thank you, Catherine. And you can also give us a call if you have any questions, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Trisha, I want to start with you. Can you share with us about what your role looks like as a a court-appointed special advocate? Certainly. And thank you for the opportunity, Catherine, for Casa to speak. And it was lovely to hear Laura and also the commissioners speak about the roles that they contribute. Um, First and foremost, the CASA's um, role is to advocate for the best interest of the child. Uh, Initially, when, um, uh, you know, generally when a a case is referred to the DCF, the Department of Children and Families, there is um, an issue that caused the referral to be made. And so that initially initially is our focal point um, of our advocacy. One of the things we do um, that is critical to um, to our advocacy is building relationship with the child and family. So we have frequent visits with the child. Once or twice a month, we may visit the home with the, um, to observe the child in the home, speak with the child, communicate with the family, and see what needs that um, may exist in the home or they may have at that time and work with the family and also the DCF social worker in finding resources in the community or services that DCF may have available that they can refer for the fam- refer to the family to, um, to meet those needs. We also work closely with the attorneys who are involved in the case and we keep communication with them so that we are always communicating any um, critical information that um, arises in the case that they should be aware of. And another critical um, responsibility of the CASA is that we we gather information in our observe in our observation of the family and and the child, and then we write a a report to the court and we attend court hearings that are affecting the child, and make recommendations for for the case as well that the the judge can act on. And it seems like you have more one-on-one time with the children that you work with. Can you talk about why is that important? Well, it, it is important. And um, the, the children who are a part of my case, um, initially there were three children and they were seven years and um, seven years and younger. And then now there are four children, including a newborn. It's important to have um, that one-on-one time with the child because you get um, an opportunity to know the child better, that you see the child opening up, you can tell whether or not the child is adjusting in the new home environment, if the child has been removed from mother's care or father's care into um, a foster placement. And um, you just kind of get to understand what, what the issues are more, more related to the needs of the child and how you can meet those needs as an advocate. And Josiah, the foster care system has had a lot of has a lot of moving parts. We mentioned lawyers, foster parents, biological parents, and the court. So, how is this role that you all play at Casa unique? Well, it's part of a proven national model in virtually every state around the country that's associated with better outcomes for kids. 
as Tricia and the commissioner uh, and also the, the, the foster parent, Laura, recognized, there are many players in this process and teamwork is essential. So uh, as Tricia suggested, partnership is key. We work with the lawyers, the social workers, educators, therapists, and many others to advance the best interests of the child while getting to know that child one-on-one. -on -one. And we recognize that professionals have heavy caseloads. So that's why really staying on the case as Tricia has in her case for over two years with such young children, she's had a chance to build a relationship with them, really recognize their needs and also get to know their extended family. So two of the four children Tricia's worked with have since been placed with their fathers and uh, the other two are currently in foster care with members of their extended families. So uh, that illustrates the, uh, the valuable role that a, a CASA volunteer can play, providing a voice for the child, but also rallying resources. And I should say as well that we're part of an increasing prevention focus. Uh, the hope, of course, is that children won't need to enter foster care in the first place. And there's a 2018 federal law, the Family First Prevention Services Act, uh, that's uh, certainly being implemented here in Connecticut as elsewhere. And our advocates get involved not only in the foster care cases, but also at a prior stage known as protective supervision, where the hope is that the children can remain with their families uh, whenever safely possible. So we got about a minute left, Josiah, but I do want to ask, how can people learn more about being a volunteer with CASA? Because it sounds like you all wear a lot of hats. Yes. Well, I would invite people to email us at volunteer at connecticutcasa.org. We also have various social media channels, including a YouTube channel at Connecticut CASA, which has ample information, including interviews with several of our volunteer advocates, including Tricia. So those would be good resources. And uh, Tricia and other volunteers are available to uh, to offer advice to anyone who's considering doing this. Uh, we certainly welcome volunteers from all over the state. Our volunteer training is currently via Zoom, so it's quite efficient and convenient. And uh, we're grateful to all of our advocates across the state already as we grow. You've been listening to Josiah Brown. He's the executive director of Connecticut CASA, as well as Trisha Goburn, who is a CASA volunteer. Thank you both so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.